You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Let's turn to Matthew 28 together. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're so glad, or maybe just the second time, we're glad to have you with us. Uh, as Jordan said, we hope to at least get to talk to you a little bit afterwards and maybe in the future be able to get to know you a little bit better uh, as we go forward. We're glad you're here, though. Whether you're just curious about church and what it is, hopefully we see from the Bible today what a Christian is to be and who our Lord and Savior is. The rest of you, my dear friends and brothers and sisters, it is good to see your face this morning. Let's turn to Matthew 28. I'd like for us to read this passage. I will read this passage. Then we will go to the Lord in prayer. By God's grace and his powerful hand, I will preach. Matthew 28, we're going to look at the last couple verses here, verse 16 through 20. This is God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we desire to hear your word speak to us. We desire to have open ears and open eyes. We might not do these things on our own, but rather, Lord, you would change us and transform us by the renewing of our minds to be those who are emissaries, missionaries, witnesses of Jesus Christ to the world around us. We ask that you would take our hearts and so fill them with the glory of God that we can't help but proclaim Christ. I pray for so many in this room this morning that are here seeking to obey. God, would you grant them obedience and a heart of faith. For some of them that are jumping in to just check us out and see what's going on, I pray that you encourage them that they would see the glory of God and their need for a holy and perfect Savior to take their place from the wrath of God that is against their sin. I pray that you would work in our midst in ways that are far beyond our abilities or doings. God, I pray for power now in your word. I ask that you would take the words that are spoken this morning in the liturgy, the songs and our prayers, and now in the preaching of the word, and drive them deep into us. May you use this word to glorify your son and have us enjoy you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, before I worked here full-time, I worked for at least two different companies that were of a decent size. And if you've worked for any company of some decent size, you recognize that you've probably seen at one point or another some messaging for the company, what they want to say about themselves, kind of what's important to them, what makes them tick, what maybe what their mission is, kind of their strategy, and what they're going about. Um, you've probably experienced this if you live in the business world, maybe not your own business, but at least you've seen others talk about this. I can remember it would be like coming across the, uh, the banner when I'd see it on different posters or different emails where it would talk about the mission or the, the strategic purpose of these different companies. And you've probably seen this where you're going and, and where you're coming from, but if you know anything, you know that you have to have some sort of clarity about what your purpose is as a company. And you've got to have an idea of what you're trying to do as a company. 
Now, it doesn't mean that to have success, someone has to be able to find all those things perfectly clearly. But inherently, that person must know if they're going to be successful, what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. This makes sense to most of us. We, we understand, though, what, when we start seeing vision statements and purpose statements and strategic planning, like all of us begin to yawn a little bit. But we also recognize if we want to get on board with the company and be where they're at and kind of say, okay, I can get on board and I can back this company, we want to know what they're all about. We want to know why they exist and what they plan to do. Um, for instance, some of you have probably listened to or watched a TED Talk, the big T-E-D, uh, those are those interesting talks, uh, lectures on interesting subjects in the realm of technology or entertainment or design, T-E-D, get the acronym there. That's what they're trying to do. Um, TED has one big purpose, which actually only has two words. Their purpose is to spread ideas. That's what they want to do. That's, that's their, their purpose in what they do. That's why they do it. But how do they intend to do that? It's kind of nebulous. Well, they tell us. Our agenda is to make great ideas accessible and spark conversation. So big purpose that they're trying to do, their purpose to exist is want to spread ideas. How do they as a company intend to do it? Well, they tell us again that they are trying to make these great ideas accessible. So that's why they put out YouTube videos. They have these big conferences. They have a website with all kinds of access on it because they're trying to do what they say their purpose is. They're trying to make sure that they can back that up. Tesla. Uh, popular name now because of Elon Musk and his electric cars and all kinds of other things. He gives us a purpose statement about Tesla. He says that Tesla uh, does what they do to accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. That's his why. That's what he's trying to eventually, that's his whole purpose in all that he does, he says, or the company. Now, how will they do that? So here's the, the mission. They say that their strategy is to create the most compelling car company of the 21st century by driving the world's transition to electric vehicles. So they've given us a purpose, what they're trying and why they do what they do, but how are they gonna go about it? They're gonna tell us their mission. They're actually gonna make this compelling car company. You probably know of LinkedIn, probably many people here have their own profiles, this professional network. They have a simple purpose, I love it. It's to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. Again, it's so nebulous and high-minded. How are they going to do it? They say, connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. Now, I want to do one more company here because some of you in this room, I hope, I think that you'll be able to, I'm not going to tell the name of the company. I'm going to let you see if you can know which one this is. Let's see if anyone can figure it out. What's the purpose of this mystery company? Well, they say this. They exist to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. Anybody know? Starbucks. Yeah, all right. I knew one person would know. Starbucks, that's right. So that's what they say their purpose or their reason is, to nurture the human spirit. I mean, inspire. Wow, these are big things. How do they go about it? They say Starbucks, they want to establish Starbucks as the premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world while maintaining their uncompromising principles while they grow. So again, what they're trying to do is inspire the human spirit by coffee. That's, that's what they're trying to do, right? Understanding what you are to do or what you're going to do and why you are going to do it isn't just for companies though, right? We understand this on a human level when we set out to do anything. We have to understand what we're trying to do and why we would be doing it in the first place. 
whether a successful organization has taken the time to articulate it well or not, they inherently know that there's a difference between a company's purpose and a company's mission. The mission is what they want to do, the thing that they're doing. The purpose is why they are doing it. The same is true for the church in God's grand design. We often rightly speak about the great purpose for which we were made. You guys could probably all tell me, it is for the glory of God. We recognize this is the grand purpose of God. We often rightly speak about the great purpose for which we were made. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is certainly our goal, our, our purpose. It's the reason that we do all the things that we do. But I want to ask, does God set an agenda or a mission for what we do? How we fulfill that grand purpose? Does God give Christians today both a purpose and a mission? The work, the thing that we are to do. How today is God accomplishing his own ultimate purpose? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, we have this passage here that kind of tells us. In Matthew 28, we call it the Great Commission. The final words in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus speaking. And in light of this opening conversation we've kind of had here, we could say that it's the mission statement of the church. You want to know what you and I should be doing as Christians in this life, in our time and place? We are called to do what Jesus commands us to do in the Great Commission. Now, before we just plunge into this subject, in this text, I think that you deserve to ask and get the, the question answered, Chris, why are you preaching this sermon today? Not that I'm against it, Chris, it's fine. Well, I'm ready to hear the Bible is as good, but why are you grouping it with all these other sermons we've been talking about, this emphasis here on the means of grace, the habits of grace in our lives as Christians? So why jump to the Great Commission now? Why are we over here? Well, we spent some serious time together trying to show that the spiritual disciplines that we've talked about are all about God's glory and us enjoying Him. In other words, how these things actually help us to fulfill our purpose. Big picture, right? But today, I want to point us in another, to another reason that we should pursue these habits of grace, these spiritual disciplines, taking in God's Word, having God's ear, and belonging to God's family. I've taken the last four weeks to describe these spiritual disciplines, so I won't take a lot of time today to do more describing. What I want to do is now take what we've kind of worked on together, and I want to help us tie it together with what God has called us to do. The last four weeks have not been like the sole makeup of all of what we do as Christians. There's a reason it's called the means of grace and not the end. I want to take us there and tie these things together. So if I were to give you a sentence that had the sermon all in it, a whole sermon sentence, here's what it would be. Pursue God's word, God's ear, and God's family because we don't have what it takes to fulfill the Great Commission on our own. Think about the whole thing again. I'll say it again. Pursue God's word, God's ear, God's family, in other words, the means of grace, because we don't have what it takes to fulfill the Great Commission on our own. We need to consider, in a sense, the utility of the means of grace. It's amazing here. We, we need to embrace the mission God has given us, given us. And when we do this, 
when you and I get serious about fulfilling the Great Commission, the habits of grace will begin to feel less like a chore and more like a gift. When we understand and go hard after the mission of God, we will see that these disciplines are channels of God's grace to us. They are ways to strengthen, to help, to build us up, to make us better at doing the task that God has given to us. The Great Commission is God's agenda for the church. And it is, by the way, humanly impossible. Uh, So it's truly good news then that the Great Commission doesn't rest on human ability. Uh, We see this here, it rests rather on Jesus who promises to be with his church. Emmanuel, God with us, glory. Thus, the means of grace are valuable because through them, we draw closer to God and through them, we get more of him. Let's look at Matthew 28 together and see this great mission. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 16, but before we read, I want you to remember what's going on here. If you're looking at an actual open Bible in front of you, you know that Mark is right there to your right. We're at the end of this gospel account, the book of Matthew. Jesus' birth and his life and his ministry and his passion and his death and his resurrection are all in the rearview mirror by this time. But those last two things are so front and center for his disciples, his death, his resurrection. It rocked their world, that their master, their rabbi, even the Messiah, as Peter said in Matthew 16, that he had died on a Roman cross. They were not prepared for that. Even though he told them what was about to happen, they were not anticipating that this is the way it would go. They thought they knew the mission, right? Like, hail the conquering hero. That's what's going on here. I mean, if you remember, let me just go back to Matthew 24, 1 through 3, and read for you how the thinking got set in this way. Listen to verse 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Hail the conquering hero, right? Listen to the next verse. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Like, hey, Jesus, what's the signal? When is this going to happen? Like, we're just so excited, but we know that you're the king, you're the master, we're following you. When when do we get to see you throw down all of these different things and bring about your rule and reign? Like, they were pretty sure what the mission was. They were recognizing who he was in some way, but they thought they knew the mission. But then Jesus died. This was shattering. Like, Like, their whole concept of what was going on is get shattered by this. Matthew 28 contains the account then of the women who came to see the tomb, probably take care of Jesus' body after the Sabbath was over. And when they show up, they experience a great earthquake. And they see this terrifyingly powerful angel sitting on the rolled away stone, telling them that he's not here. He has risen. He gives the women instructions to inform the disciples about the resurrection and then give them the location somewhere in Galilee where they will meet him. So the women hustle away with fear and great joy at this message. 
who do they stumble into next? But Jesus himself. The women take hold of his feet and worship him. Jesus tells them not to be afraid, but to go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And of course, in the affairs of men, particularly to talk about the chief priests now, the resurrection is a bit of a problem for them, right? They're like, uh, this is not in our plans either. They've got a dead man removed from his tomb with no logical explanation, and the story that the guards are telling them is some kind of alien supernatural abduction. I mean, think about the way this must have seemed to them. This, this must have been surreal. Like, they, they're like, I know you're not going to believe this, guys, but this is what really happened. And so they respond, of course, and like, okay, let's pay them off and make sure no one else knows about this, and we'll just say that the disciples stole the body, and the text tells us that that was the story that went out for the Jews from then on. And that satisfied most people who heard about the incident, but that's not the truth, nor was it the end of the story. Look at verse 16 with me. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. So these guys obey. They follow his words. It's the 12 disciples minus Judas. They've listened to the word that was given to them by women. That women had seen this and they got this and they, and they come and tell them. I mean, you got to think they're at least a little bit skeptical of this, right? Yes, they had been taught that he would raise them the dead, but again, they're having their whole world flipped upside down and not understanding what's going on. Let alone it was women who came and told them this story. And it's a fantastical story. So they're thinking, okay, we'll do this. We think we ought to follow it. And they do. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now this moment, can you consider this for a minute? When they come and see Jesus for the first time, has to be full of emotion and inner turmoil and probably some kind of confusion for them. They're really not sure how to feel about this, what to do with it, what this actually means. It's him. I mean, they're really seeing Jesus with their own eyes. They're not sure if it's a vision. They're not sure what's going on. The women that told them the story, they weren't crazy. Jesus really was in Galilee. But what did this all mean? And you see that their reaction here is actually mixed. Yes, they worship him, but some doubted. Or some of your translations may actually say that some hesitated. That's another good translation of this word. Meaning that they're not exactly sure of what's going on here. They're not sure how they should respond. They just know their eyes are seeing something in front of them, but they don't want to be tricked. They don't want to do the wrong thing, so they hesitate. There's doubt there. Remember, many of them hadn't understood his teaching of his own resurrection. And this was taking them in a direction that they weren't expecting. So we have the reaction that's mixed, but they're ready to hear from the master. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says to the disciples that something has changed since the last time he saw them. Now, he was God then. It's not as though he wasn't. He was always one with authority. He has always been one with the Father. But there's an authority in heaven and on earth that is manifested after the defeat of sin and Satan, which can rightly have him now declare 
that he has done the work that he has set out to do, and he has all authority to send out his people based on his finished work. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, listen up. If there's anyone you should listen to, it's me. In other words, despite what the world thinks about me, despite the things that they're making up about my appearance again and being out of the tomb, you need to listen to me because all authority by God has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Here it is. Here's the mission. It's easy for us, obviously, to get distracted by all the wonderful things going on in this passage, but here is the job. Here's the mission. Make disciples. That's at the very center of this passage for a reason. It's not send missionaries. It's not give food to the needy. It's not have evangelistic campaigns. All those things are good. It's way more difficult than that. It's go make other real Christians. Can you go make a Christian? Can you go like, okay, I'm going to go over here to the store, I'm going to pick out 20 people, and I'm going to make them Christians. Do you realize that's what he's calling them to do? Go make disciples. Go make other real Christians. How in the world are they to do this? Two things I want us to consider here, because he explains it better evangelism, and discipling. Most of us inherently know that for a person to become a real Christian, they need to hear of and then think about and then trust in Jesus Christ. Someone who is an unbeliever needs to hear about the one who they are going to believe in, right? We know that there is no salvation without the word of Christ being preached. This is evangelism telling the good news, the gospel, to those who need it, which is all. And we know that you can't be a disciple of Jesus without hearing about Jesus and what he came to do and why he, you know, we need him and all of those things together help us understand why we would encounter him and rejoice. I'm really talking about the truth that we find in Romans 10. You know this probably, but Romans 10, 13 through 17 says this, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Disciples made. But he goes on. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Not done. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So, and here's his statement, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. A person can't look around at the Grand Canyon and all its grandeur of the skies and get saved. We know that it's enough to condemn them, to show them there's something going on, but they do not know the gospel through looking at nature. We recognize this is true. If we know anything about making disciples, you and I actually know this one very simply. We understand that we must actually tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. We must tell non-Christians the bad news 
that their sin has pointed them against the God of the universe who made them as good and as holy, but we also must tell them the good news, that Jesus Christ is the one who came to take the penalty for our sin, and through faith we can know and love and trust him and be reconciled to God. This is the gospel. We call all men and women to repent of their sin, to trust him as Savior and Lord, and to know the forgiveness of sin from the one who has all authority on heaven, um, in heaven and on earth. How are you doing at this? Um, how, how, how are you doing at pursuing non-Christians? Do you love them? Do you obey the Great Commission? How are you engaging them and telling them the bad news and then telling them the good news? Are you telling them the bad news at all? I find for myself, just personal here, that telling people the bad news is really, really uncomfortable because what it means is just so offensive to a world that does not know or claim the holiness of God. And so for me to say that you're sinful or bad or wicked, like me, by the way, for me to do that is just absolutely offensive and terrible, and this person ought to be kicked out. But if we are to ever see someone become a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must give them God's truth, which is the truth. It doesn't happen any other way. They need to know this or they will never become disciples. Remember what the central part here is. Make disciples of all nations. How will they ever be made disciples unless they know God and their current state before him? Well, they might, they might go to some church services. Brothers and sisters, that's good. And I hope that the word preached throughout all the churches in the world will be true to the gospel. But coming to church does not save you. They must understand the word of Christ and be called to respond in faith. I want to encourage you this morning in this area because I think you're probably a lot like me. You struggle to get to the point with your unbelieving friends that you tell them of the holiness of God. Their sin against him requires that someone has to pay the price or that they will pay the price. I want to encourage us to preach the gospel in our neighborhoods, to our coworkers, to our friends and family, that we would therefore be salt and light to the world that God has placed us in. I'm amazed. There are places that you guys are in right now that I will never get a chance to be in. There are places and people that you have access to that I have no chance ever to get to be in. And so this morning, one of my calls for us is to see that this is not just, this is not just my great commission or the elders' great commission. It is ours together to be called to the task of sharing the good news of our Savior to the world around us. This is part of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission. But that's not all. This doesn't fulfill all that Christ has commanded us in this passage. He doesn't say, notice this, he doesn't say, hey, go therefore and make converts. That's often the thing that we subtly think missions and the Great Commission is all about. That's not what he says here. He doesn't say, go make converts. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But then he explains himself what he means, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This isn't a process 
of just talking to someone about Jesus, having them believe the gospel and pray a prayer, and then go on there with their lives and just hoping that, yep, that's part of the great commission that I've done and it's done. When we talk about making disciples, we need to start backing up and thinking about the whole process. Jesus is saying that a profession alone is not discipleship. He he calls a person to die with him. I mean, isn't that exactly what baptism is? Listen to Paul's words in Romans 6. He says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we talk about baptism, we're talking about a ceremony that's a public proclamation that Jesus Christ is the King and that this person is willing to die with him because he knows if he is united with Christ or she is united with Christ, they also will live with him. He is their King. In this act, this baptism, this person has confessed Christ to other real Christians and they are willing to live in accord with what Christ has commanded. It's an act of obedience to our Lord who asks us to gladly identify with him and his body, the church. Now, here's a little commercial for you. Tonight at 5 o'clock, we are having a ceremony. We are having the baptism of Amy Trushler and Michael Hemmer. We're excited because they have confessed Christ and they've come to talk and say, hey, we want the church, we want you to baptize us so that we can Show forth Christ. We want to be involved in this way in obedience. So I encourage each and every one of you, whether you're a member here or not, come be part of this and see what it means for one to be baptized into Christ and be part of the body. It's one of the highest points of Christian worship. It's not the only, but it's a part of the Great Commission that we are going to take part in tonight. But even then, these newly baptized disciples won't be done their journey in being made disciples. The Great Commission isn't over for them. In fact, in a sense, it's actually kind of the formal beginning of it, or the official beginning in one sense. Our mission is not complete when these two have been baptized tonight. Our mission is continued, by the way, he talks about this in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, if you and I think that evangelism is a daunting task, which it often can be. (laughs) We need to look and consider this statement right here. Jesus is saying that not only should we introduce them to Christ and have them identify with him, but they need to be taught what Jesus commanded. No, 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 that's not right. There's more. He actually says they need to be taught to observe, (laughs) which means obey or keep all that Christ has commanded. I mean, what exactly does this mean? What well, means that we need to teach every disciple what Jesus commanded and then teach them how to obey those commands that he has said. And by the way, Jesus affirms the whole Old Testament and heightens it. So don't think that the Great Commission is done and taught if we just teach the New Testament. We're seeing this is much larger than that. This is a call to make people mature in their walk with Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are thinking, I've heard that somewhere else before. I think Paul has said that. Listen to Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He said, him, meaning Jesus, him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I could, I could spend a lot of time here. It's almost like a restatement and like a, a galvanization and even more things going on about the Great Commission here. It gets it so right. I mean, Paul is saying that we, the church, proclaim Christ with the intention of warning and teaching so that we could answer to God with the disciples that we've been seeking to make, obeying this great commission. His words are that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is a monumental, lifelong, impossible task this side of heaven, except for the grace of God. The Great Commission encompasses the call to discipleship and, of course, evangelism. This is the commitment of the church to evangelize the world and disciple every Christian according to what the whole Bible says according to Jesus. Tonight, we'll be trying to fulfill the Great Commission by baptizing new members and affirming others in their confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Right now, back in those rooms, right now, as our kids are in kids' Sunday school class, there are others who are seeking to proclaim the gospel to them that they might make disciples. The Great Commission is, is, is happening right back there. Before the service today, we actually had a chance that a few gathered together to pray for the Riau Malayu people in Indonesia, where we have sent funds, where we've sent missionaries, where we've sent our prayers and connections. Why? Because we want to see the Riau Malayu people, another nation, come to know Jesus Christ not only as converts, but to establish a church where they would grow and they'd be making disciples. Thus, even in our prayer time before the service, we're trying to fulfill the Great Commission. No less, what are we doing right now? As I preach the word of Christ, teaching you, by God's grace, what he has commanded to us in Jesus. This is part of the Great Commission. I'm not saying that everything we do in life is the mission of the church. No, 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 not at all. It's not what I'm saying. That would create confusion and dilute the importance of these prescribed actions. I'm saying that we are trying as a church to center our doing, our work, around the mission that we are given here in the Great Commission. So I'll ask you again, are you doing the same? Are you on board with Christ's mission? Do you take this mission seriously? Or do you kind of maybe think that it's something that more spiritual people do or like the elders of the church, they're the ones that really are to do this kind of stuff? Do you desire to see other Christians get baptized and added to faithful local churches? Do you work to help other Christians know Christ and his commands and help one another obey them? That's what we're talking about here. Do you teach in Sunday school? with the goal of seeing our children come to know Jesus Christ and be made disciples? Do you give your money to see the local church supported so that the gospel can go forth? Of course from here, but also in every one of our ministries that we would focus on seeing disciples made of all nations. Do you serve the body of Christ through maybe the hospitality team so that others may hear the word of Christ preached on a Sunday morning? I mean, there's so many ways that we can and should get involved in teaching one another to obey the commands of Jesus while making him known to the unbelieving world around us. 
Have you taken the time and effort to consider how you will join this mission? Have you been strategic? We've kind of, it's come up a couple times now. Have we considered how we would do good works to one another? Have we considered how we would reach and strategize to those that are unbelievers around us? And I will ask one more just personal thought is, have we prayed towards those ends? That God himself would work to see a harvest of souls that would be worshipers to know him. At the beginning I asked, does God set an agenda or permission for what we are to do? Does God give Christians both a purpose and a mission? I think we can see pretty simply that the answer is yes, he does. Making disciples of all nations, and by that I mean evangelism and discipling, making disciples is the work that God has called us to. It is God's design and plan for his own glory and for our joy. Now, if you are willing to obey and to participate wholeheartedly in this mission, you will find that you are unable to do it alone. That's a pretty terrible way to end a sermon then, Chris. (laughs) Do all this stuff and you can't do it. This is one of the things that makes Christians so different. We know we can't do it. Why we worship and come together to exalt the king himself. I mean, can anyone here in and of themselves make a Christian? We know the answer. Of course not. If we will embrace the mission and and get serious about evangelism and discipling as to make many disciples of all nations, we will begin to long for help. We will recognize that we are not up to the task. We can't do it on our own. We will need God's gift of strength, of wisdom, of patience if we are ever going to accomplish this great task that he's called us to. If we are ever going to fulfill the great commission, we need the very presence of God in all that we do, in all that we do, or we will never be able to make disciples. And that's why we should all be so glad that there's still one more phrase in this section. Look at the final phrase, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He began this section with his own authority, and he ends with power and his own presence. How will we ever accomplish the Great Commission? It is only through the power of God and his work of grace in his people. But we know he ascended to heaven right? We know he's at the Father's right hand. So how will he do that with us? Well, at Pentecost, we know that he sent his Holy Spirit to comfort and guide and empower his people. And so we trust it is through him that we have the presence of Christ. This is an amazing thing. But then is it just automatic? It just flows out of us? Or does it take the renewing of our minds to be transformed into people who know and can walk by the Spirit of God. I think you know Thank I'm you going for with listening this. to this podcast. How can we draw if near you're God? Part of a gospel receive His power in your city, and His grace. Encourage you to How do we get more of God? For further sermons and more Practically information speaking, on through hearing His word in the Bible. It's through having His ear in prayer. It's through belonging to His family in fellowship. These habits of grace are not some sort of divine chore list, guys. They're not just things that we need to get done. 
They are an, an, they are an end. They're, they're not an end. They are a means. In a sense, they aren't chores. They are gifts to us. When we understand and go hard after the mission of God, we will see that these disciplines are channels of God's grace. They are ways to get strength, to get help, to get better at doing the task that God has called us to do, which will result in our own joy in Him, and ultimately, they will result in His glory. The Great Commission is God's agenda then for the church, and I'll say again that it's humanly impossible. So, when you come this morning, where's the grace, Chris? What do we do? The grace The good news for us is that the Great Commission does not rest solely on human ability. It rests on Jesus and His promises to be with His church always. Thus, the means of grace are valuable because through them we draw closer to God and through them we get more of His presence. So as we seek to engage in the Great Commission together, I want to encourage you with that one sentence again. Brothers and sisters, pursue God's word, God's ear, God's family, the means of grace, because we don't have what it takes to fulfill the great commission on our own. We need God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your great grace. I thank you that you've shown us yourself. You spoke by the prophets, but then these last days through Jesus Christ. We worship him this morning and thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. We ask that as we, 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 we learn and as we pray and as we meditate and as we fellowship, Lord, that you would give us what we need to fulfill what you've called us to do. Lord, you've promised us your presence. So we ask you for more grace. We ask that you'd even help us in our weakness that we would draw near to you and be joyful that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.